The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Best, the fourth wall of the fourth wall edition. It's Wednesday, May 22nd, 2019. On today's show, Avengers Endgame has been knocked off its weekend B.O. throne by none other than Keanu. If uh, memory serves, I don't think we've ever talked about Keanu on this show. I'm very looking forward to it. His franchise, John Wick, give us, gives us its third installment, Parabellum. And then Fleabag, the astonishing tour de force from writer, showrunner, star, directress, everything, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, returns for a second season to much uh, acclaim. It's a triumphant return. Can't wait to discuss it. And finally, we talk about the generation known only as X. Joining me today is the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hello, sir. And of course, Slate's film critic is Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey, Steven. You could write down all of his dialogue on a single page, maybe not literally, but in John Wick 3 Parabellum, we are placed well beyond the reaches of the literal uh, there is a moody contemplative pseudo movie somewhere in here buried beneath the drapery of its tone poetic production design and its many spectacular fight scenes. But really, who cares? There's yeah, world building mythology about a community of assassins. But who cares? Let's be honest. You came for the dead soul performance of Keanu as John Wick, a wanderer in a fallen world, the killer among killers who's forced out of retirement to avenge the death of his Puppy, part Clint Eastwood, man with no name, part Hong Kong action set piece savant, all via Condios. Uh, let's listen to a clip. You do realize that I'm management now, right? I'm not service anymore, John, so I don't go around shooting people in the head. I'm not asking you to kill anyone. I just need you to get me to him. To who? Your old boss. You want to kill Barada? I'm not going to kill him. I just need to talk. What could he possibly give to you? Guidance. Look, I made a deal when I agreed to run this hotel. And that deal said that I had to follow the rules of the table. If you're not going to kill him, he is going to kill you. And then probably me too for walking you up in there. All right. Well, that you heard Halle Berry as uh, one of his co-stars uh, and a fellow assassin um, talking to the relatively monosyllabic uh, Keanu slash John Wick. Dana, um, I don't think any of us had much of a history with this franchise, but uh, we devoted ourselves to it over the weekend. What do you uh, what do you make of the Wick trilogy? Well, I think Julia and I had seen the first John Wick. Is that right, Julia? Yep, I believe I endorsed it on this podcast. Oh, really? I didn't remember that. Well, yeah, I, I had seen the first one, not the second one, which I caught up with in order to be able to be a John Wick completist for you all. The director, Chad Stahelski, who's directed all three movies, he co-directed the first one, I believe, is a stuntman uh, or was a stuntman as a career before he directed. And he was Keanu Reeves' stuntman. So he has a long history with doing the same stunts as Keanu, watching Keanu do stunts. He has a kind of physical history with Keanu Reeves that informs this series. And as you said, these these movies are all about the action, a very specific kind of action that sort of mingles martial arts style fighting with, you know, your your typical action franchise thriller. And the world building that you mentioned, as well as most of the character building in this series, is something that's built really slowly. If you go back and watch the first John Wick, which came out in 2014 and was a fairly low budget movie and sort of a cult hit rather than a big blockbuster hyped movie like this one is, 
it's there's something very simple and pared down about it. I mean, at this point, the franchise has become all about international travel and, you know, hikes through the Sahara Desert and crazy luxury hotels all over the world. But the first John Wick is this incredibly simple movie about a retired assassin who, after losing his wife to some unnamed disease, gets a puppy. The puppy is killed by some thugs who break into his apartment, not realizing that they are robbing the legendary assassin John Wick. And as you said, Stephen, the uh, the revenge cycle sparked by that beagle puppy's death is now continued unto the third segment. So really, the first half hour or so of the first John Wick movie is all about Keanu Reeves crying over his wife's death and playing gently with a puppy. <laughs> and so that person is the person that we see transform into what you call this this soul-dead assassin. And it's it's really that character, as embodied by Keanu Reeves, and only Keanu Reeves could embody the character in that way, <laughs> that makes the franchise, to me, lovable. I mean, it's pretty much at this point bone-crunching action and spectacle. And if you popped into Parabellum, the third part, without having seen either of the first two, I could imagine just saying, this is just another mindless action movie. But I now feel some degree of endearment for this series, although I do think it probably should have terminated after three, and I don't quite know why they're continuing to dangle the hook for yet another one. Well, I really liked the first movie. I endorsed it. I think because, uh, A, just the conceit is so ludicrous. B, the action was kind of beautiful and arch and surprising and interesting and as I recall, sensical, like the kind of fights that you could follow and that had a real logic and didn't just feel like um, a bunch of clanging and whizzing and whirling until a victor emerged through no actual cinematic logic. Um, and then also because the characters seemed to map onto Keanu Reeves' strengths as an actor so well, that his kind of zen blankness uh, was really useful and interesting in the character of this single-minded assassin whose uh, dogged devotion to the um, to vengeance for his dog uh, almost made him sort of dog-like. I don't know. It, it just was goofy. It was like a perfect little goofy oddball thing. I skipped the second one, I will say, and did not do my homework as well as Dana. Watched the third this weekend and found myself having a very variegated response to the movie. I spent the first 45 minutes thinking like, whoa, this arch, highly stylized, uh, you know, alternate universe in which there's a interconnected web of assassins overseen by a secretarial pool with ill-fitting pink shirts and tattoos and a network of luxury hotel safe houses. Like the specificity of the universe it conjures and then the particular beauty of the first couple of fights, one of which happens with great and surprising violence in the New York Public Library, the second of which seems to happen in some kind of Chinatown weapon and mirror emporium <laughs> that, that did that is a few blocks from uh, my former New York home, uh, are somehow beautiful and funny. The fights are funny. They're that you believe in the violence of them, but the there is wit in the specifics of the fighting. And so for the first 45 minutes, I was like, John Wick, he's back. Wow, this is so interesting. Like really fun, beautiful martial arts action scenes that uh, that are entertaining to watch. Then there's like another 90 minutes of, I don't know, like so much violence. The wit leeches out of the whole thing. And I found myself 
feeling like Tipper Gore or something. Like I just found myself being like, what is wrong with our country? What is wrong with our culture? There is just so much pointless gun violence, like all of these people getting shot at schools. Like I I had a, a very bifurcated response to this movie. And I think around halfway through it loses the taut little thread of, of wit and unusualness and becomes just a dumb gonzo gun blowout. And I couldn't quite figure out how it lost the thread. Um, but that was my response to it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, Julia, that's uncanny. I mean, that's almost exactly the, that graphs perfectly on, t- you know, uh, uh, maps perfectly on top of my reaction to the movie, which was knowing very little, I'd caught bits of the first one on TV um, and loved its kind of low budget, unselfconscious, like kind of cult, came in as a cult movie, underhyped, you know, sort of in contrast to like Mission Impossible, which just comes comes at you right out of the gate as a juggernaut. Um, and, uh, you know, didn't really know what to expect in this one and found myself totally charmed by the first 15 minutes to half hour of it. Like the something about the doped down, otherworldly moodiness of the production design uh, uh as it plays against the arch sense of humor, like the two really go together kind of weirdly well. Um, And then you have these very, very precise fight scenes. Um, A lot, you know, to its credit, Marvel has reached out to indie directors to lend a kind of auteur stamp to what could otherwise be totally industrial product of the superhero movies. The problem is, and they do that. I think that they they bring a human element to the better Marvel movies, and a certain kind of wit and um, and humanity to them. The problem is, it's directing a fight scene actually is a craft uh, verging on a art form, if not an art form. And and this guy really knows how to do it. They're so geographically precise. You're always oriented in these fights. Are both totally baroque completely elaborate over the top preposterously over the top i mean ludicrous beyond ludicrous i think the thing julia that leavens this movie for me although you're right that the body count is extremely high and by the end i was also kind of sickened and that's why i was saying that they, maybe they should put a point on it after after chapter three and not try to go even bigger but i think the thing that saves me from the kind of horror of the the many bone crunching action sequences and the body count, which has to be over 100 people that die in this movie. What saves it for me, although it did start to fall apart in the second bigger half of the movie, is the sense of humor. Like, he goes into a horse stable where the Central Park carriage horses are kept, and he commits several murders via somehow encouraging a horse to kick someone to death. Because, of course, John Wick has this animal connection, which we see several times in this movie with the dogs and the horses as well. And again, somehow because it's Keanu, because it's gentle-eyed Keanu, you believe it. You believe that he's this master assassin who also has this gentle connection with all the world's fauna. Yeah, I mean, the animal thing is kind of cute and charming because it's Keanu, but that was actually part of what curdled my response to the film. And I would actually argue, and this is something I would not say about any other film, that the movie basically dies when Halle Berry shows up on screen. Like somehow uh, the conceit of this film is that there is like a no-holds-barred bounty on Keanu's head and all of the world's assassins in the secret assassin club are like trying to get him so he's on the lam and he secrets himself away to the orient i guess it's casablanca but it's like some pretty freaking robes and camels and souks and you know it's it's the orient uh and he runs into the oriental version of the safe house hotel which holly berry somehow runs as a retired assassin and 
she has not one but two dogs. And so it's like John Wick 3, double the dogs. And they have this other fight where the dogs, it seems to basically be launched by the idea of Halle Berry being parted with her dog. There's just this like core of animal sentimentality pitted with absolute disregard for human life that mm. eventually just made me nauseous. Like, what yeah. the hell is wrong with the, this culture? <laughs> you know, it just made me think about everybody being sad about the dying gorilla and nobody being sad about all of the other things that there are to be sad about in the world. Like, I, ju- I really was appalled by it. Like, I felt, I have never felt so conservative as by the time I walked out of this movie and just thought, our culture is broken and rotten and, and very, very dumb. It's so funny. I've had that exact reaction to so many violent blockbuster movies I've watched over the years. Like I, I can almost number that emotion and just recognize it when it comes up. But I managed to avoid it in this movie, and it was probably because of the goodwill carried over from previous movies. I completely agree, Julia, that the Orientalism in this movie is distasteful and gross and was absent from the other two movies, really, where most of the bad guys tended to be Russians or Italians or someone that we're not quite so culturally used to regarding as, you know, blank others to be slaughtered at will. Mm. I mean, the puppy at the center of this movie, you know, isn't the one that got killed in in uh, in the first installment it's Keanu right I mean the word that I keep I mean everyone is kind of simultaneously realizing a that this is a monster franchise built up from you know modest beginnings and b that they kind of love Keanu you know that that he himself I mean even as he's playing John Wick this stolid emotionless killing machine you imagine that he's essentially a puppy dog you know he's still Bill or Ted, whichever one he was, from the excellent adventure, who just kind of wants to be at home being dandled, you know, and given treats or something. I mean, there's just a kind of innocence to Keanu. And to the extent that that's a, a, to the extent that you feel that throughout the movie, the fact that he's wholesale slaughtering dozens and dozens of people maybe doesn't start to bother you. But I, Julia, I agree. I mean, just given. How much do you have to leave at the theater door to walk in and watch a movie in which gun violence is, it's stabby. A lot of the movie is stabby. A lot of it's hand-to-hand. A lot of it involves knives and not guns. But it was almost maybe, maybe it's as crude as that, just the introduction of gun violence into the movie in a huge way suddenly made it less artful, very cold, and uh, just bloodthirsty in a way that was just, it was very tough to sit through i i think it kind of revived towards the end yeah the final fight wants you to believe it is a beautiful set piece that you care about and it is and it's slightly more precise than the killing all the north african baddies fight but it also requires you to like believe in or care about this nemesis who's not very well established i mean to your question dana yes absolutely we've seen so many more movies for discussing the purpose of discussing on this podcast that have stupid violence. And for some reason, this one, because of the turn in it and the betrayal in it, bothered me more. Like this movie seemed smarter. It seemed like an ode to the fight or the violence as something full of craft and like balletic excellence and ingenuity and wit right just the wit and cleverness of how do you how do you choreograph this fight such that somehow a guy gets killed with a library book and to have something that seemed smarter than the garbage just turn into the garbage 
I think that's what triggered my negative response. All right, super quickly, uh, another star of the movie is the Intercontinental Hotel, the neutral territory. And I have to say, as a conceit for a movie, as a travel writer, I love the idea of this like preposterously elegant edifice where no one's allowed to kill anybody else. And the weird characters, these sort of lurking Wizard of Oz figures of the hotel proprietor and the concierge, uh, I think that that's really smartly done and gives a kind of cohesion to the whole thing. Anyway, John Wick 3, Parabellum, um, it'll make a billion. Tell us what you think of it. Uh, Let's move on. All right, before we go any further, I'm sure we've got some uh, business we need to attend to. Dana, what uh, what's up? We certainly do. First of all, a reminder about Slate Day, which is drawing ever closer. On Saturday, June 8th, Slate will be in the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line and in the SVA Theater in Chelsea with a day of live podcasts, energetic conversations, and fun experiences. I'm really excited about Slate Day. Um, we Not only do we have a live show that evening, but I'm going to be hosting some sort of trivia table. (laughs) Nobody has explained to me what the trivia is, so I better start learning everything pretty soon. There'll also be live shows from Outward, The Waves, Dakota Ring, Studio 360, Trumpcast, The Political Gab Fest, and us. We're doing a live culture gab fest that evening on the High Line. You can come for the whole day with an all-access pass, or you can just grab tickets for whichever event you want to attend. Whichever you choose, we cannot wait to see you at Slate Day on June 8th. For tickets and more information, go to slate.com slash live. And my last piece of business today is just one more promotional announcement for my new old movie podcast, Flashback, which I'm doing with Kay Austin Collins, the film critic for Vanity Fair. We now have two episodes that are up, both for free. We were going to only release the first episode for free because this is a Slate Plus only podcast. But we decided just to give people a little bit more of a chance to get to know what the podcast is for free that we would release the second one as well. So our second conversation, which is about the 1970 movie Wanda from Barbara Loden, the single movie ever directed by and starring Barbara Loden, which is an absolute masterpiece. So if you want to hear those first two episodes and decide whether or not you want to subscribe and listen to the rest, we'll be doing them every two weeks into the indefinite future. Go to slate.com slash culture slash flashback. And finally, in Slate Plus today, as a footnote to our third segment on Gen X, and finally, in Slate Plus today, as a footnote to our third segment on Gen X and whether there is any meaning to the division of time into demographic generations, we are each going to cite one of our favorite cultural artifacts from the Gen X era. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. That helps to cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of those shows and many other wonderful benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. All right, Steve, back to the show. All right. Well, Force of Nature, Force of Culture, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is somehow both the showrunner for Killing Eve and the writer-director star behind Fleabag, which returns to Amazon streaming with its second season. Season one started with uh, scabrous and uh, somewhat graphic depictions of the title character's sex life. It evolved from a tour de force sex comedy about a self-sabotaging young woman into a quite precise meditation on love and grief. Season two opens about a year later. Uh, on a family dinner. This is a set piece every bit as intricate and dazzling and in its way violent as a John Wick uh, fight scene. Culminates in Fleabag bonding with a young priest, a cool, loquacious, sexually charged, but ultimately called young man with whom she falls troublesomely in love. Let's listen to a clip. Fuck me. Mm. What a pair. I know, right? (laughs) Where'd you get this? Oh, just a... Stole it from a market. 
Oh, it's quite a piece. Who's the artist? Just a market artist. <laughs> if I sell it, I take 10%, deal? Deal. Okay, well, I'll get her photograph now. Don't tell Claire, please. For what? Or I'll, well. <laughs> you got nothing on me, princess. <laughs> or I'll tell her you were watching gangbangs. Please don't do that again. Julia, let me start with you. Uh, I mean, we have consumed a lot of culture over the years together. We've, we've been in this foxhole a long time. I'm guessing Fleabag is, is, is one of the real keepers. What do you think? That's a leading question, Steve, but I will allow it because I loved this. I loved this. And I recognize that at this moment in the uh, arrival of Fleabag 2 onto the cultural scene, we may perhaps not be giving our audience news. This this season of this show has been wildly quelled over. There have been many, many, many accolades, including from our own Gillipaskin. Um, and I kind of turned on the show knowing that I would enjoy it and like it, but I think it is profoundly good. And I am excited to spend the next 10 minutes or so trying to figure out the exact nature of its brilliance and goodness with you guys, because it seems indestructibly good and good good beyond uh, dissecting to death. And I would also say the last, like, I don't know, 20 weeks of TV shows that we've watched, I keep coming in and having this feeling of like, maybe I'm, maybe I've gone numb. Maybe I'm oversaturated. Like, I don't know, sex education. It seems good. Pen 15. Those guys are smart. Uh, Shrill. Yeah. What a step for representation, but just like not loving them. And it was just so great to be transported off into loving something so completely and wholly as I loved the show. Uh, Dana, what uh, do you second this? I really did love it. I have I have a quiz for you guys to see if you remember what was the aspect of the first season of Fleabag that I had reservations about. The the uh, Jim Halpert Mankay, she talks to us and mugs to us throughout the whole thing. Exactly. It was the way that Phoebe Waller-Bridge broke the fourth wall in the first season, that, that, that her character, who's only known as Fleabag, I love that she still doesn't have a name this far into the show, and no one calls her that, it's just sort of her name for herself, I suppose, um, that she would look at the camera and interact with us, essentially wink to the viewer and take us outside of the story. I found that too cute and too self-conscious it took me out of the story too much and it just became a tick it was something that i also couldn't stand about house of cards when kevin spacey would stare at the camera and say something entirely obvious that you already got from the previous scene and i always felt in the first season of fleabag that that whatever was being communicated in her glances and asides to the camera was already implicit in the scene itself and didn't need to be there but in fleabag season two in ways that i will not spoil here that glance that regard to the camera is problematized it becomes something that's that's questioned by people in the show and by the character herself and i thought the way that was done was so brilliant i almost couldn't believe it was happening the first couple mm -hmm. of times yeah. there was a displacement of that glance toward the camera uh it was the, the fourth wall of the fourth wall being broken right i mean the acknowledgement of the acknowledgement and that sounds sort of too meta and too clever but in fact that was what brought out 
the heart of the character and of the show. And so I won't say more than that, but I will say that my only reservation about the first season of Fleabag was displaced radically and beautifully by this season. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. I mean, it reflects back on the sa- on the first season and makes it seem smarter and more soulful than it was because it's building to the second season. And the other thing is that just when you contemplate art, I feel like I have this division in my mind between clever and tricksy, but maybe not emotionally true. Like if you think about how fun it is to read sort of the game fiction of Italo Calvino or, uh, you know, to encounter the kind of clever, perfect craftsmanship of Ian McEwan, like the the sharper, the formal craft, sometimes the more removed it seems to be from honest human emotion. And what is so breathtaking about the season is that the formal cleverness is astounding. It, it it hits you with surprise and beauty and it brings you to a deeper emotional truth and makes you feel like you understand how to be a person and to love the people that you love it like it's so good ah steve yeah, it's, save it's, me from it's, my i just agree with everything both of you've said and double down on it triple down on it i mean it's just so incredibly good i mean on the fourth wall i mean it that's a perfect example of how technique is or cleverness or a certain kind of formal cleverness is integrated into the emotional truth of the show. I mean, it's it's without giving anything away. I mean, it's her coping mechanism to exit the difficult situation she's in in any given moment and go meta with it. I mean, we sense that even though, of course, well, I mean, in season one, you sense that even though the character herself, obviously in those scenes, isn't saying that, isn't turning away from the people she's with. In some metaphorical sense, she absolutely is. And the commentary in her head is this, you know, savage commentary and self-savage commentary in her head is a way of, is a, is a distancing technique, uh, is meant is meant to bring the viewer face to face with the di- distancing technique that this person clearly uses in her life. That's incorporated. That's the baseline co- incorporated into season two. I mean, it becomes about that distance that that character needs to establish in order to cope and survive. Um, but ultimately, is putting a, a, a second skin between her and, and and the world. I mean, it's just so fucking brilliantly conceived uh, and executed. Um, I just think you know, I, I, I've just. To, just to digress for a second, like I'm obsessed with the, the relationship of between craft and, and and genius. And when you get an art form that's just beginning to know itself, nobody knows really what they're doing. They're, they're, they don't have technique yet, right? When you listen to the Rolling Stones playing rock and roll in 1962, they didn't grow up having music lessons where they learned how to play rock and roll, right? They're discovering in playing this kind of music with one another, using relatively new technologies, how to make these loud, supercharged noises. And that's where the energy and the truth of it comes from. And then the next generation gets music lessons or listens to those records a million times, both, you know, presumably. And then technique begins to enter and it refines, but something gets lost. And I think what happened with TV and 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 stream, streaming TV especially is you just you know television had these little glimmers of genius, little glimmers of genius, and then somehow somewhere in the course of the ten or so years we've been doing the show, it got really really good, but then became recursive, and it and you just it it became super professionalized. The level of craft on your average you know boutique 
streaming TV show is so fucking high. And that it, you know, and comedy especially now is a product of technique. I mean, people who just have it as a kind of reflex in their nerves to produce these kind of, you know, joke dense scripts. And kind of what got lost was was genius. And what's amazing about Phoebe Waller-Bridge is, in part, obviously, because she's starring in it, but, you know, is that she's just brought that, that impossibly... Like I mean, she's just brought the quiddity, you know, back to it. The irreducible, like, just that's just like that's genius. Like, what she's fucking doing is is so beyond just simply being good, right? And it, it I, Julie, I just completely agree with you. It's for the first time in a long time, one's commitment to getting to the end of something doesn't feel like homework. I mean, it it. It. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, it's just the person who's working at the absolute top of their game with something to say that's timely, but also completely personal. Um, and it's just, and let's not lose sight of the fact, it's just fucking funny. I mean, she's just, as a performer and as a writer, she's so unbelievably funny. It's like you're both getting open heart surgery and laughing your ass off at the same time. It's just an amazing achievement. Yeah, Steve, I have to say the last show that I felt that way about that we've watched that I was absolutely entranced by, watched beginning to end and felt could only exist from this one person's mind was Russian Doll, which which resembles the show in another way in that it's short and compact. Its entire season also was, I believe, six half hour episodes. And there's just something so satisfying about binging something beginning to end in a single less than three hour stretch and feeling like the arc has been completed and somebody's not stringing me along, making me see 17 more seasons that are of dubious quality. It's conceptually brilliant. It has something real and and valuable, I think, to say about modern life and love. It is really freaking funny. Her performance is excellent. Also, the rest of the characters and their performances are excellent. Like, I don't think I fully appreciated when I watched season one how brilliant Olivia Colman, uh, recent Best Actress Oscar winner, as the evil stepmother, this archetypal character who's just... Uh, deliciously deliciously terrible and then i actually think even though the the relationship um between phoebe waller bridge's character fleabag and her quarry is the heart of this season the relationship with her sister and her dad in the wake of her mother's death are actually the emotional center of the show and the and those two characters are so beautifully drawn the truth of those relationships which don't follow logical narrative arcs but seem to follow the actual arcs of relationships with the people you grew up with when you were an adult are to me some of the the most impressive achievements of the show yeah absolutely agree julia the casting is absolutely dead on and andrew scott who plays the unnamed priest called only the priest in the credits is such a discovery i can't wait to see him in other things who he reminds me of and maybe this is part of why the entire internet is swooning for this hot alcoholic priest it reminded me of seeing Mark Ruffalo and You Can Count on Me and him just seem, seeming like someone from outside the movie world. <laughs> like there's something so natural about his delivery that he just seems like a person who happened onto the set and is just existing with his actual faith and his actual speech patterns and his actual beliefs. And, and, and his actual biceps. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, he's also as hot as Mark Ruffalo in You Can he's, Count on Me, which yeah. is going some. <laughs> yes, he is that hot. Um this show's so fucking good. You got to check it out. Fleabag, it's in season two. If you haven't watched season one, just just do the whole arc of it. But but um, yeah, catch, catch yourself up. It's it's can't miss. 
Reality Bites, Nirvana, Slackers, the movie Slacker, Grunge, all avatars of the relatively minor moment and generation known only as X marks the spot where something might have been or so many people seem to say when talking about the generation that came after the boomers. They, it's treated often as a hangover, an afterthought, or like a kind of lost middle child. Uh, it's kind of... I, 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 the New York Times... Julia, the occasion for this is the New York Times has done a giant package on Generation X. And of course, there's just endless generational chatter and really warfare on Twitter. Um, I I was trying to sort this all out in my head. Um, You kind of have this this deadbeat moment that comes. It's definitely in the aftermath of the 1980s. Reagan is gone. Bush one is kind of a nullity as a president, president, but it's before all of the defining features of the 90s kick in. The internet, right? The rise of the internet, the dot-com bubble, and Clintonism really haven't expressed themselves yet. And you get this, like, I'm going to call it a three to five year period between roughly 89, 90, and roughly 94, 95. And all of this stuff happens in it. And there's this intensely self-conscious and and highly commercialized attempt to identify what this moment is, who this moment speaks to, who's coming after the baby boomers, uh, and um, you know all of the touchstones that I just mentioned arise during then. And then, in some sense, it's kind of over. It's come and gone. Um, I am I just talking my own book here because I happen to be in graduate school during those years, listening to Nirvana and going to see Winona Ryder movies, or uh, or am I um, am I onto something here? Oh, I mean, I guess that seems reasonable. I I think the question I always have is: Yes, Generation X was alive in that moment and of a certain range of ages, but also in all the moments before and after. So I'm not quite sure how that that crux moment figures into the whole thing. I will say, parochially, that I define every examination of Generation X on the merits of whether it defines me as part of Generation X. This one defines Generation X as born between 1965 and 1980. I was born in 1978. Uh, Sometimes I am classified as between X and Y in the generation that uh, I think at Slate we once called Generation Catalano, a.k.a. the people who were (laughs) of swooning age when Jordan Catalano's character was on My So-Called Life, a TV show that I actually never watched, but, uh, you know, recognized the uh, symptoms of. And so anyway, as as the tail end baby of this generation who was like 13 or whatever when singles came out, and uh, aspired to growing up into that kind of interesting, cool, slacker, whatever. Uh, I felt both happy to be included and then, um, because I guess maybe I am Generation X, like a little skeptical about what inclusion meant. I mean, to me, the most interesting thing about this is the rise of you know, you can tell who's in charge of the media by what it is nostalgic for and interested in. So I guess this package made me feel old because the people who care about Generation X and growing up in the 90s, something that I devoted issues of my college newspaper to, now run the uh, style section of the New York Times and more power to them. Dana, are you Gen X? Yeah, according to the categorization of this package from the New York Times, I am squarely in that Gen X demographic. I mean, we've talked about this before when generations have come up. I just, I find this whole media discourse about generations and which one you belong in so annoying. (laughs) And there's almost nothing in this package that I found to be of any value, really. It just seems like this empty recitation of 
product names and brand signifiers. And the divisions always seem completely random. And there's always some sub-generation, like Julia mentioned, Generation Catalano being invented so that you can narcissistically (laughs) preen over your adolescence more. I just don't really understand the point of this generational division, except for creating, I don't know, a media stir or warfare amidst the generations or something. And uh, in general, it just seems to me like a somewhat empty cultural exercise. Can, Can somebody explain to me the value in these divisions or why we should believe whatever cutoff dates are thrown at us by whatever package? Mm, I have a, I I have a theory if you want to hear it. Um, So I think that, uh, so the question of whether or not generations are a useful analytic category, much less real is in and of itself to me, is just an interesting question. And the, the way, the way I would divide it up is that prior to the, roughly the baby boomers or at least prior to the um you know creation of the modern marketing science of modern marketing demographics you know the concept of generations had something like a historical reality behind it which is a cohort that comes of age during a cataclysmic turning point in history usually associated with war or some kind of upheaval that conceives of itself in highly self-conscious generational terms. So the founding fathers were a generation, the lost generation because of World War One. Onto this has been grafted, you know, super commercialized marketing categories that are a way of manufacturing patterns of mass consumption, usually via nostalgia or or a kind of generational narcissism. The boomers are interesting for being both, right? From sampling both of those two phenomena kind of equally. I mean on the one hand, the boomers absolutely were defined by the cataclysms of public life in the 1960s. They both were shaped by them and put their stamps on them um, and thought of themselves in highly super self-conscious terms as uh, a generation defined by those events and then you know, uh, in, in quite grandiose terms as a generation that would go on to make history and place its stamp on the world. I mean, I think all of those things are true enough to be regarded as, as sociologically real in some sense. At the same time, the boomers were also the very first generation to have been conceived by corporate America as, um, uh, as a uh, consumption cohort that could be marketed to en masse all at the same time. And as I've seen someone say on Twitter, uh, you know the boomers have essentially squatted on public life since re- since roughly 1964 when they embraced you know the Beatles. I mean, you know, many people embraced the Beatles, but effectively with the rock and roll becoming the dominant cultural you know pop cultural music force in 1964, and they've never ever relinquished that squatting. And so, quite a lot of what people feel about generations is is a kind of referendum on the boomers, <clears throat> their own super narcissistic, self-conscious um, domination of, of, of public life for the last 50, 60 years. Um, uh, what I would say is that I, I was born in 1964, and which means that I'm completely a phenomenon of the cusp, that many definitions say that I'm virtually the last baby boomer. Many definitions say I'm the very first Gen Xer. I've never felt specifically like either. If I hang out with people who are one to three years older than I am, I feel as though I'm hanging out with people who, who feel to me more like 10 or 20 years older. Their their orientation is still somewhat in the 
60s. Um, you know, if they're a younger sibling, they will have had an older sibling who absolutely came of age in the 1960s and they experienced that, you know, very powerfully and very vicariously. If I hang out with people one to three years younger than I am, I absolutely feel as though I'm hanging out with people who grew up in the in the Reagan um, 80s. So I feel personally hyper aware of these things. The the one thing I would say, and a, as if they're real, right? Um, what I find persuasive about this Generation X concept is that if you're someone like me who lived in the cusp, those five years between 1990 and 1995 were really, really defining because that was sort of as you were you were losing you were losing something, you know, you were losing your adolescent self, you were losing your sense that the music you listened to as an adolescent would always be the most important, most dominant music that ever was. And then you got this kind of new lease on life because there was this highly self-conscious youth culture that was drawing on the energies of things that mattered to you one last time, right? So rock and roll, which was so obviously by 1990 if you had half a brain you knew it was going to be just displaced as youth music by hip-hop that was inevitable all the energy all of the originality all the novelty all all of what was progressive and forward moving about popular music was coming out of hip-hop and not out of rock and roll and then you suddenly get nirvana you know you get you, you know, you had blockbuster cinema completely displaced the auteur movie making of the 1970s. And all of a sudden you get Sundance, uh, you know, and indie filmmaking achieving a new kind of cultural salience. And, 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 it, you know, you know, it was just kind of this, the long early nineties, you know, when I was in grad school and all of this stuff was like, this is kind of cool. And then it just curdled and commercialized and became twee and turned into Evan Dando so fucking quickly um, and disappeared. So I understand the nostalgia of it, but it it's just saturated with both things. I mean, a degree of, you know, authenticity and a high degree of totally shit-eating, ironic, um, pseudo-inauthenticity. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think constitutionally, Dana, I'm with you that intellectually generations seem like an act of collusion between marketers and journalists who are interested in pushing our nostalgia buttons. And then I'm also with Steve in that there is some commonality that you share with the people who grew up with the same set of experiences and references. As for this particular package of nostalgia from the New York Times, I mean, on the one hand, I admire the scope of it. There were lots of interesting bits and bobs within it. Um, you know, in particular, reading Katie Weaver pretending it's 1994. That was a funny essay. And it was interesting to think about how communication and planning and the texture of daily life has been changed by the telephone. Um, you know, other reexaminations felt less valuable to me. I love Taffy Brodesser Ackner, and I'll read everything she ever writes, but I'm not sure we needed to look back with the hindsight of, of however many years, 25 years, to learn that the rules, the infamous dating guide that taught women in the 90s that they should snare men by acting like they didn't want them was really necessary like I, we did we we actually wrote all those essays then and had all those thoughts then and my like teen self who hadn't dated anybody was like oh the rules disgusting that's not the kind of woman i am 
So I don't know, man. It's funny, though, that we're both cuspies. Dana, you're, this is a Gen X podcast flanked by, by ingoing and outgoing cusp people. Maybe that, maybe that <laughs> fundamentally defines the Slate yeah, Culture Yeah, we have Gap to Fest. invent a name. We have to invent a micro, micro, nano generation for just the three of us, that we, what, which one we belong to. <laughs> I don't think it made it anywhere into this package, but do you guys remember earlier in the year when CBS News ran some kind of Chiron, or it wasn't even the Chiron. It was a screen that was that was dividing up the generations, and it left out Gen X entirely. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it became this huge meme on Twitter. It literally the years between, I think it was like 1964 and 1981, were just not accounted for. Like no people were born during that time, <laughs> which is maybe the most Gen X thing ever, right? Just being the forgotten. Because I guess you, one thing you can sociologically say with some truth that isn't just about one writer remembering eating Dunkaroos in the backseat of their parents' car <laughs> is is that it was a, a small demographically small generation. There are a lot more people born in that millennial period and obviously in the baby baby boomer period than in this this cuspy era when we were born. So that has to mean something in terms of kind of cultural power and sway and, and, you know, mass consumption and all of that. But as one of the pieces in this package points out, much of the technology that dictates and controls every moment of our daily lives now was invented by people from Gen X. Whether that's a gift or a curse, I don't know. But Sean Parker is cited and Sergey Brin, right, the inventors mm-hmm. of Google. Yep. And also Jack Dorsey of Twitter is a Gen X person. So, I mean, that that the slacker idea that, that was popular in the early 90s, right, the idea that, that the Gen Xers were those who were not up to anything, who were apathetic and had no ambition, seems to be belied by the fact that they've transformed the entire world around us. I mean, I just think I'd come back to what I think of as the totally primal divide in this discussion, which is between a cohort, a rough cohort of people who are defined by something they all do collectively versus, you know, a cohort defined by what they consumed. And I think there are so many reasons. I mean, we it has to be said emphatically that the social contract with the young in this country was broken in new and horrific ways over the last 10, 15 years, 20 years. And the breakers of the contract, roughly speaking, were the boomers. And they they sort of, the, the metaphor of pulling up the drawbridge, drawbridge, you know, after you've gotten all of the benefits of a social collectivity, ascribing their existence to your own individual visionary genius, um, and demiurgic efforts, and then denying them to everybody else on the theory of your own hyper individual greatness is fucking repulsive. And to the extent that we can hang a collar of opprobrium around the baby boomers, then I think generations are completely real. Um, so I think then turning around and saying about the subsequent generations, the ones that came after the boomers, who have so little oxygen left over after the boomers to then say, oh, well, you're only defined by what you consumed. I understand their impulse to say either fuck you to the boomers or fuck you to the concept of generations uh, or both. Um, so uh, it, it, it it's important to think through why these are such rhetorically charged battlegrounds because they refer to things that are both partially chimerical, if that's a word, and um, all too sociologically and historically real. Anyway, I will let that babble be the last uh, word on the subject because we've come to the end of the segment. But um, check out the package in the in the Times and come talk to us on Twitter about your generation and your feelings about generations, and we will now move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse day 
Nah? What do you have? <laughs> that was novel. <laughs> it's all in the silence. So much is said in the, the pause between syllables. Keeping it fresh. Keeping it fresh. <laughs> all right. I, I'm going to endorse a book that I just started, which seems to be a thing that I'm always doing on this show. But so far, it's always panned out. When I'm excited about a book in the early pages and I endorse it, I have never yet taken one back. And I'm very excited to finish reading Why Karen Carpenter Matters, which is a new book by Karen Tongson. Karen Tongson is a, is a professor of English and Gender and Sexuality Studies at USC. She's also a former colleague of mine. So this is something of a, of a log roll, although we're not in close touch anymore, just on social media. But she was one of my colleagues at, at UC Berkeley. Uh, taking Judith Butler's classes with me. And she has done good work with the knowledge that she acquired there. She's produced this little book. It's in the Music Matters series from the University of Texas Press, but it's not at all an academic book. It's a little 130-page monograph about the Carpenter's music and about Karen's own history with it. She, in fact, I did not know this before reading this book, but she was named after Karen Carpenter. Her parents are from the Philippines and were musicians who admired Karen Carpenter and covered her songs in their cover band. And uh, she then subsequently moved to Southern California and grew up listening to that music. She's written this sort of combination autobiographical essay and sort of gender and sexuality studies take on Karen Carpenter and what she meant to a young Filipina-American girl growing up in Southern California. And it's just stunning so far. It's just funny and insightful and full of all kinds of details about the Filipino music scene that I had no idea about. And uh, even if you're a fan of The Carpenters and a fan of Todd Haynes' wonderful movie Superstar about Karen Carpenter, which she mentions in the early pages, and sort of feel like you're up on your Carpenter's lore, I guarantee that you will explore new angles on The Carpenters with Why Karen Carpenter Matters by Karen Tongson. Uh, that is very cool. Um, uh, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I'm going to do one log roll in response to that, which is that we sent a reporter to uh, the Carpenter Festival. There was a, I think, 50th anniversary of the Carpenter's arrival on the scene festival uh, a little bit north of Los Angeles a couple weekends ago. And we have a great report about that intersection, which I will put, we'll put a link on our show page. My endorsement is an alarm clock. It is the Braun BNC008 digital alarm clock. And here's what I like about it. Number one, if you purchase an alarm clock, you can get in the habit, as I recently have, of putting your telephone plugged in across the room from your bed. Maybe you could even go crazy and put it in a different room. I'm not wild like that. Um, but it is such a marked improvement on your life if you do not have your phone in bed and you cannot like fall down a K hole of interneting before you start to read your book and turn out your light. And also if you cannot like wake up, turn off your alarm clock and immediately fall into a sinkhole of the internet. I love the internet. As we know on the show, it's my official character to love the internet and think the technology is good. But the technology I recommend today is the old fashioned alarm clock. Okay, so number one, put your phone across the room. Number two, it is this specific clock that you should get, and here is why. It is such a beautiful piece of industrial design. It has many fine qualities. Number one, you can simultaneously see both the time that it is and the time that your alarm is set to. You don't have to toggle back and forth between them and then notice which switch it is. Also, it just says AM and PM on it. You don't have to like notice whether there's a dot and remember if the dot is AM or PM. Number three, 
the mechanism by which you set the alarm is very clear. It's a button on the top of the clock. And when you set the alarm, it protrudes above the top edge of the clock. So you can just look at the clock and by clocking its mere shape, know whether the alarm is set. It's such, it's just so well designed. It's a beautiful clock. It costs 45 bucks. The Braun BNC008 digital alarm clock. Get it, set it, put your phone across the room. Your life will be changed. I'm very impressed that, Julia, that you are putting a technology restriction on your bedroom. I think that's such a smart thing to do. And you hear over and over again that that kind of light interferes with sleep, that, you know, as you say, it's an opportunity to fall down an Internet K-hole. It just seems like even if you are a very postmodern pro-Internet person, it's just healthy to not have that piece of technology in your hand at every second. In fact, I'm so hardcore that I have an analog alarm clock with just, you know, smash the button on top and wake up in the morning. All right. Well, very quickly, uh, I have discovered a music artist named Hatchy, H-A-T-C-H-I-E. Uh, I love her song, Obsessed. She has other songs uh, as well. She's coming out with her first record uh, in a couple of months, I think, or a month. She has an EP out. There's a ton of stuff on YouTube, um, including a KEXP live performance. Uh, she's great. Uh, Hatchy, Obsessed. And then um, also, I, I, I have to assume that at some point in the history of the show, each of you has endorsed a piece of writing by Gia Tolentino. Sure. We love Gia. She's been on our show, in fact. Yep. Uh, well, now it's my turn. Um, I mean, she's she's great. Like, I mean, she's great in the actual sense of the word great. I mean, she has that ability of the very best essayist to say something that until she said it, you didn't quite know it. And after she says it, it seems completely obvious. Um, a clarity, lucidity of judgment. Um, she can go fancy with her diction, but doesn't need to. Um, she's just emerging as like just one of the great cultural critics going. And I just, you know, I've I've known this forever, but it was just something about this piece on incels. Um, she has a book coming out. I hope we have her on the show talk about the book. But in the meantime, this was a fairly incidental piece um, called The Rage of the Incels. And it, it just, for its just groundedness and clarity and, and you know, moral, there's some odd connection between moral simplicity and moral complexity, right? Like, clearly, any piece of writing worth its salt has to take into account the fact that the world is irreducibly plural, conflicted, neurotic, and and complex. At the same time, there's something about the attitude of the writer that conveys a sense of 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 like a clarifying intensity that is in and of itself an argument implicitly or explicitly on behalf of simplicity, like moral simplicity. Like like don't overcomplicate this. Don't put too so much nuance onto this and so much empathy onto this that you forget that there's a, a villainy here. And it's just a tremendously well-achieved piece of writing. I mean, I just stood up and, pl- and applauded when I got to the end of it. Anyway, we'll link to it. It's The Rage of the Incels by Gia Tolentino and Hatchie's song, Obsessed, are my endorsements. Julia, thank you. Thank you. Dana, thanks. As always, a pleasure. As always, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. 
You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or interact with us at our Twitter feed, which is at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. sneak peek at this week's slate plus segment if you want to hear the whole thing plus ad free podcasts join us at slate.com slash culture plus but when the reporter came by and stuck the microphone in between us uh and said you know what does it mean to you that Kurt Cobain died all of us at the same time said who's that it was just the quintessentially gen x moment